Good morning. I don't think there's any more sobering passage of Scripture in the Bible than Revelation 2 and 3, where we see Jesus walking among the churches and He's evaluating them. And He walks among seven churches and He writes seven report cards. One for each of those churches. And you say, well, in a letter like Revelation that's written for the end times, why was it addressing seven churches in a little cluster in what is modern day Turkey? Well, I think the reason is because those seven churches represent a cross section of the churches in John's day. And they represent a cross-section of the church today. In other words, you would find churches like this today. There are churches like Ephesus, where the people have left their first love. There are churches like Pergamum, that have compromised with the world. There are churches like Philadelphia that have a mission mind and are reaching out to the lost. There are churches like Sardis, about whom Jesus says you have a name that says you're alive, but you're dead. So the question that needs to be answered is, which church are we? Which report card is ours? Or more pertinent, which type of Christian am I? Because if you look at every one of these letters, it says, To he who has an ear, let him hear. It's personal. In most churches, you have a variety of kinds of Christians in one particular church. And so the question is, what type of church are we generally, but more importantly, what kind of Christian am I? And then the more important question is, how am I going to respond? The good thing about these report cards is they're midterms. They're midterms. They're not the final grade. Because in them, Jesus says, here's what you need to do. So it's a midterm grade. Here's your relationship with the Lord. Here's where you're at. You're an Ephesian Christian, or you're a Sardis Christian, or you're a compromising Christian in Pergamum. Here's what you need to do. Here's what you need to change. Now today, we're going to look at the report card of the church in Smyrna in Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. Smyrna was a beautiful city. It was located about 40 miles directly north of Ephesus. It was built on the summit of a huge hill called Mount Pagamus, or Mount Pagus, I'm sorry. It was founded in 1000 BC, and around 600 BC, the whole city was destroyed and left desolate for a couple hundred years. When Alexander the Great saw the location of this hill, he wanted to build an ideal city there, a model city there. 
But if you remember, he died in his mid-30s, so he never got around to it. One of his four generals, Lysimachus, picked up the project and finished it about 290 B.C. Built an amazing city there. It's still around today. It's the third largest city in Turkey. So they prided themselves in having died and come back to life. Now it was a port city on the Aegean Sea, situated on a beautiful natural harbor. And their major export was myrrh. Myrrh is a fragrant perfume. You know what the Greek word for myrrh is? Smyrna. Myrrh was so prominent here that they named the city after it. Now, myrrh was extracted in resin form from a thorny balsam tree. And the technique was that they would wound the tree, and out of that wound would come sap, and they would collect the sap and roll it up in a ball and let it harden for about three months. And then it was ready to be used. And its primary use was as a perfume to embalm bodies. Now this word myrrh, Smyrna, is used four times in the Bible. One is right here in Revelation chapter 2. Let me remind you of the other three times. It's used in Matthew chapter 2 when the wise men came to see the baby Jesus and they brought three gifts, gold, frankincense, and Smyrna, myrrh. In Mark 15, on the cross, Jesus was offered wine mixed with Smyrna. And when he died, they wrapped him in linen with a hundred-pound mixture of aloes and Smyrna, myrrh. So we see myrrh at his birth, at his death, and at his burial. When Christ came as the baby to die, there was myrrh. When Christ was on the cross, there was myrrh. When Christ was in the tomb, there was myrrh. Myrrh is identified with suffering. Now, what's the characteristic of the church in myrrh? Look at chapter 2 of Revelation in verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. This is the suffering church in the city named after myrrh, which is identified with suffering. How fitting is that? The interesting thing about myrrh is that it doesn't produce any fragrance unless you crush it. That dried sap is of no benefit, no value, until you crush it. 
And the more you crush it, the more fragrant it becomes. And the same was true of the church in Smyrna. The more they got crushed, the sweeter they smelled. The more they got stomped on, the more the world caught the fragrance of their faith and their love. History teaches us that the more Satan wounded and bruised and hurt the church, the more it released the fragrance of Christ. So the crushed church is the fragrant church. Of these seven letters, this is the shortest one. And I think that's true because Jesus didn't have anything negative to say about this church. To Ephesus in chapter 2, look at verse 4. Jesus says, but I have this against you. To Pergamum, verse 14. But I have a few things against you. To Thyatira, verse 20. But I have this against you. You won't find that phrase in the letter to Smyrna. Because one of the byproducts of suffering is purity. Persecution refines. It weeds out sin. It weeds out hypocrisy. Nobody's going to come to church as a hypocrite if they're suffering there, because when the suffering comes, they're gone. My daughter, Lindsay, was very independent when she was a little girl. She still is. But as a little girl, she would always say, no, Daddy, I can do it. No, Daddy, no, Daddy, no, Daddy. You have a child like this? No, Daddy, I can do it. Until she got into some persecution, or an intimidating person came in the room, or she fell and hurt herself. And then she was looking for my arms. Persecution causes a child to run into daddy's arms. And persecution causes the church to run into God's arms. Listen, persecution doesn't destroy the church. It drives the church into the arms of Jesus. And we have the privilege here in Revelation 2, verses 8 to 11, to see Jesus' response to the suffering church in Smyrna. And in every one of these letters, Jesus describes himself at the outset. And to do that, he goes back to chapter 1 and takes from John's description of him as the risen Christ. And I love the way he addresses this suffering church. It's in verse 8. He says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this. 
Now, Jesus highlights three aspects about himself when he's writing to the suffering church. The first is that he's sovereign. He says, the first and the last. Perspective is crucial in suffering. Because when you're suffering, you tend to focus on the present. This hurts so bad, all I can do is focus on right now. And Jesus says, I am the first and the last. To get through suffering, you need to realize what God started in the beginning, where he's taking you in the future so that you can understand what he's doing today. Jesus says, I am the first and the last. I created everything in the beginning. I will consummate everything in the end. And I can sustain you in the middle. I'm sovereign. Second thing he says is, I'm your Savior. He's the one who was dead and has risen to life. He has been victorious over death, and he says, because I live, you shall live also. He is sovereign. He is your Savior. Point out one more thing. He is sympathetic. He was dead. Jesus has suffered and experienced everything you're experiencing. So he's sympathetic. And we see that in the first two words in verse 9, where he says, I know. I know. There are a lot of Greek words for know. This is the word oida that means to know experientially. So Jesus is really saying, I know how you feel. One of my pet peeves is when somebody comes up to me when I'm suffering and says, I know exactly how you feel. And I'm saying, you don't have a clue, pal. Right? Don't you hate that? Somebody comes up to you when you're suffering in a unique situation and they say, I know, I know, I know. They don't know. Jesus comes and says, I know. And he knows. The hands he reaches out to you still bear the scars of the nails. He knows. He's been through everything you go through and more. He is sympathetic. He knows. Jesus can say, I know what it feels like to be punched, to be mistreated, to be cussed out, to be mocked, rejected, humiliated. Jesus can say, I know what it's like to have somebody else's saliva running down my face. 
I know what it's like to be poor. I know what it's like to suffer. I know what it's like to be broken and weeping at the grave of a loved one. Jesus can say, I know what it's like to die and breathe your last breath. And I know what it's like to be in the grave. While God the Father knows academically, he doesn't know experientially. He's never been poor. He's never had no house. He's never been alone. So in order that he might know, God became flesh. So Christ is sovereign. He's in control. He's our Savior. He provided victory over death. And he's sympathetic. He can relate. So he reminds us at the outset of this letter, I am your sovereign, sympathetic Savior. Now what he says can be broken down into three parts. The first is the concern of Jesus. To this suffering church, he says, I know and care about three things. The first is pressure. Verse 9 says, I know your tribulation. That word tribulation is a Greek word that describes something being crushed under a huge boulder. Something being smashed by a great weight. You see the play on words? The church in myrrh was being crushed, and the more it was crushed, the more it gave out its fragrance. And so they were experiencing this crushing pressure of tribulation. Some of you sitting here this morning are experiencing pressure right now. Maybe it's a potential pink slip. Maybe it's a broken home. Maybe for you it's a wayward child or a wayward spouse. And you're experiencing timeless days and sleepless nights. Maybe it's the fear of an x-ray coming up or just the fear of uncertainty. That's pressure. But for these people, the pressure was not just circumstantial and arbitrary. It wasn't just the pressure that everybody goes through. He's talking here about the pressure that came from their commitment to Christ. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 9, John refers to himself as your fellow partaker in the tribulation which is in Jesus. Paul says this in Acts 14.22, Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Now Paul knew tribulation. When he said that, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God, he had just been stoned to 
to death and left to die and came back. So he had bruises, swelling all over his face as he's telling them, through many tribulations you must enter the kingdom of God. He didn't need illustrations. John knew tribulation. He's writing from the island of Patmos where he's a prisoner. This church in Smyrna knew tribulation. They were losing their jobs, losing their friends, losing their lives for their faith in Christ. I wonder this morning if Jesus could say to you, I know your tribulation. Or are you someone who's not experiencing tribulation? Because you're not sold out in commitment to Jesus Christ. The reason we experience pressure is because we go against the flow of the world. Some of us go along with the flow of the world, and that's why there's no pressure in our lives. There's no tribulation. There's no cost because we're not really committed to him. I like water parks. I like it for the high flying rides and down the water, but the thing I don't like at water parks is the lazy river. Don't even know why they have that. I was in a water park once and I noticed in the lazy river there was a girl with goggles on and she was swimming against the current, training in the lazy river. She was doing what nobody does in the lazy river. She was going the wrong way, going against the flow. That's the Christian life. Now, if your Christian life looks like a tube, lemonade, sunglasses, suntan lotion, that's not commitment because you're going with the world. When you go against the flow, you get pressure. Jesus says, I know your pressure. I know your tribulation. Secondly, he says, I know your poverty. This church was poor. There's two words for poor. One is panea. That's a person who worked hard just to survive. And then there's the Greek word patochia. That means absolute, abject poverty. This is the person who was unable to put any food on the table. This is the word used of the church in Smyrna. You see, they weren't lower middle class. They had nothing. They had nothing. We can't even relate to that because we have so much. But Jesus could. In 2 Corinthians 8, 9, it says, Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became patochia, poor, abject poverty. 
that you through his poverty might become rich. He could say the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. They were poor, and Jesus could say, I know your poverty, because I've been there. Now, I love the parenthesis here. I know your poverty, parenthesis, but you are rich. Now, he doesn't say you're going to be rich. If you hang in there, I'll make you rich. That's not what he's saying. You already are rich. Which tells me we need to step back and see how, va- how God values things. Because real riches are not in material things. Real riches are in spiritual things and eternal things. If you have the love of God, you're rich. If you have the peace of God, you're rich. If you have the grace of God manifest in your life, you're rich. Who's richer, the guy who wakes up on a park bench with peace with God or the man who wakes up in a castle with anxiety and no purpose in life? See, God says to this poverty-ridden church, you're rich. 2 Corinthians 6.10, Paul referred to himself as having nothing, yet possessing all things. I've got nothing, but I possess everything in Christ. It's interesting to contrast the church in Smyrna with the church in Laodicea. Jesus says in Revelation 3.17 to the church in Laodicea, You say I am rich, and you do not know that you are poor. The poor church God calls rich. The rich church God calls poor. Which tells me that some of us need a lesson in heavenly economics. Jesus says, I know the pressure you're under. I know your poverty. And then thirdly, he says, I know your persecution. Look at the rest of verse 9. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. This church was being blasphemed by the Jews. And Jesus carefully says they are so-called Jews. They call themselves Jews, but they're not. Because the Bible says a true Jew is one inwardly. And so they're not true. In fact, Jesus says they're the synagogue of Satan. That's pretty strong words. That wasn't on their sign. Their sign said the synagogue of God, but Jesus says they're the synagogue of Satan. Why is that? Because though they claim God, they have rejected his son. They have rejected the Messiah. And they're left with Satan. Let me say this as lovingly as I can. No, sorry. 
Judaism is as satanic and pagan as any other religion. Because any religion minus Jesus is satanic. Now, God loves the Jews. He has a future plan for the Jews. But Jesus can still say that's a synagogue of Satan because they've rejected God's son. In fact, I can say the same to you personally today. If Jesus Christ is not your Savior and the Lord of your life, then Satan is. It's that simple. These people were being slandered. They were being verbally attacked for their faith in Christ. Can you relate to that? Some of you know what that means. You experience that at work. You experience that at school. You, some of you experience that in your own home. Don't be surprised. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. Paul said, 2 Timothy 3.13, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So persecution comes with your commitment to Christ. You should expect it. So Jesus says to this church, I know and I care about your pressure, your poverty, and your persecution. And then secondly, we see his counsel. In verse 10, and Jesus says, I've got some counsel for you. First of all, verse 10, do not fear. I'm told that's the most common exhortation in the Bible. Do not fear. In fact, I'm told, I didn't count, but I'm told there are 365 fear knots in the Bible. If that's right, that's pretty cool because that's one per day. Uh, somebody count those this afternoon and let me know. Why does God say fear not to us so much? Because we're prone to fear daily. And we need to be told, don't be afraid. Don't panic. Don't be intimidated by the opposition. Don't run scared. Relax. Say, well, Dan, I could relax if the pressure would go away. I, I could relax if things would just let up a little bit. Look what Jesus says here. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Jesus doesn't say, don't be afraid, it's going to get better. What does Jesus say? Don't be afraid. It's going to get worse. 
you're going to suffer more. Some of you are going to be thrown into prison. You're going to suffer tribulation for 10 days. Now, why does he say 10 days? Some Bible teachers say, well, that's symbolic for 10 years or 10 kinds of tribulation. I don't know why you make it into something it's not if it's so clear. To me, you're going to suffer 10 days. It means 10 days. Have you suffered lately? 10 days is a lot. But I think what Jesus is saying is, it's not going to last forever. It's going to last 10 days. There's going to be an end to this. And I think it also tells me that Jesus cared enough about these people that he counted the days. They're suffering. He's not indifferent. He's counting the days they're going to suffer because he's intimately involved and intimately cares about their situation. So Jesus says, don't be afraid. And then secondly, at the end of verse 10, he says, be faithful. When you're in a trial, the tendency is to be between the pendulum of fear and faith. One minute, I'm fearful. The next minute, I'm faithful. What does Jesus say to the suffering church, to the suffering individual? Don't be afraid. Be faithful. Don't compromise. Don't shy away. Keep standing firm. How long? Until death. Now, that could be intensive because maybe at the end of the 10 days, some of them are going to be martyred. Or it could be extensive, which says, I want you to be faithful all the way to the end of your life and death. You say, but this is killing me. You're not done. You're not done. Be faithful unto death. Whatever path God calls you to, whether it's martyrdom in 10 days or a long life of faithfulness to him, be faithful. question often asked is, if God loves us, why does he let us suffer? You ever struggle with that question? Let me interject some reasons right here. All of these are not in the text. In fact, only two of them are in the text. But let me interject some reasons real quickly. I won't elaborate much. Just to give you an idea, there are plenty of reasons God allows you to suffer. Number one, to test the quality of your faith. See the phrase in verse 10? That you may be tested. 
God uses suffering to test you. Because it's easy to sit here on Sunday morning and say, I trust the Lord. It's not so easy on Wednesday when you hit pressure or poverty or persecution. God tested Abraham in Genesis 22. He said, I want you to take your only son Isaac up on Mount Moriah and sacrifice him to me. It's easy to trust God around the dinner table when your family's all sitting there. It's a whole different test to take your only son up on Mount Moriah and sacrifice him to the Lord. It's one thing to trust God when the blessings are flowing into your life. It's another thing to say with Job, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. When the money's coming in and the garage is full of cars and the bank account is overflowing, it's easy to say, Jesus is my all in all. It's another thing when your world is falling apart and you get a pink slip or you lose your health. The test then is, can you still say, he's my all in all. See, God tests you to let you know if your talk lines up with your walk. Second reason is to humble you. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, 7, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in my flesh. Now, thorns hurt. And Paul had a thorn in his flesh. Sorry. A thorn in his flesh, somewhere that hurt. And God says, I'm allowing that thorn in your flesh to hurt you so you suffer so that you don't exalt yourself to keep you humble. So I would say if you are suffering big, God must have some big plans for you to keep you humble. Why does he want you humble? Because the Bible says God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. If you're going to receive his grace, which you have to have to live, you've got to be humble to get it. And many times God's suffering that he allows in our life brings us to that point. Third, to rearrange your priorities. In Hebrews 11, verses 24 to 26, Moses is faced with a choice. He can choose to live with the people of Egypt or live with the people of God. If he chooses the people of Egypt, it says he gets the passing pleasure of sin. If he chooses to identify with the people of God, He gets to suffer with them. 
Here's a principle. Don't miss it. There is a degree of suffering which always comes with doing the right thing spiritually. And that suffering helps to set our priorities. Because in the midst of suffering, we tend to focus on the spiritual rather than the physical. On the eternal rather than the temporal. You ever notice that when life is smooth sailing, there's a tendency to forget about God? When everything's hunky-dory, I don't think about throwing myself on the altar. But when my life caves in, God matters more than anything else. I believe God will allow suffering so that eternity becomes more important than time. So that the invisible becomes more important than the visible. Fourth reason. To give you empathy for others. Second Corinthians 1.4. You might want to mark it down if you're suffering today. Second Corinthians 1.4 says that God comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. When you go through suffering, God comforts you so that after you go through it, you can reach back and comfort someone else. Sometimes God lets you go through suffering and experience the comfort so that you can say with Jesus in verse 9, I know what you're feeling. Jesus is not the only one who can come to someone who's hurting and say, I know. If you've been through suffering and experienced his comfort. Maybe you've been through cancer. You find out about somebody else in the body who's been diagnosed with cancer. You're the one who gets to come and say, I know how that feels. Here's what God did for me. Maybe you've been through a miscarriage and you say, why would God ever let me go through that? Well, maybe he did it so that you can go to someone else who has just experienced that and say, I know how that feels. Let me hold your hand and pray for you. Maybe you've been through a divorce. Someone else is staring at a divorce and you can go to them and say, I know how it feels. I know how it feels. God lets us go through suffering so that we can empathize with other people. Fifth reason, to mature you. James chapter 1 says we're to rejoice in trials knowing that they produce endurance, which leads to maturity and completion. Trials are God's way to bring you to the next level of maturity in your Christian life. Now I want you to notice something. It doesn't say rejoice because suffering is fun. 
It says, rejoice because you know that God is using that suffering to produce something better. The Bible said, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Did he enjoy the cross? No. In fact, the night before the cross, he's praying and he's sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. And he's saying, Father, if there's any way, let me get around this cross because I don't want to go through it. But he went through it because of the joy beyond the cross of the results and the outcome being your salvation. Jesus endured the pain of Friday because he was looking forward to the joy of Sunday. Sixth reason. To break you of self-sufficiency. I believe that God will do whatever it takes for as long as it takes until you and I get the message without me you can do nothing. You know where my daughter gets her independence? I gave it to her. She learned it from me. Self-sufficiency, I can do this. No, God, no, God, I can do this. Until suffering comes. And we have to realize and learn that lesson over and over again that apart from him, I can do zero. Let me give you one more. To increase your reward. In 2 Timothy 2.12, Paul says, if we suffer with him, we will also reign with him. And we find that same incentive here. If you look in chapter 2 of Revelation in verse 10, he says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now, there were two people that wore crowns in that day. When you won what we would call the gold medal today in the Olympic Games, they gave you a crown, a wreath that you wore on your head. And when you were a king, you wore a crown. So the two ideas behind a crown was that you were a victor and that you reign. But what I want you to notice is that this is not promised to everybody. It's for those who remain faithful through pressure, poverty, and persecution. James promised the same thing in James 1.12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life. This is a crown, this is a reward given to those who persevere through trials and suffering. So Christ's counsel to suffering Christians is don't be afraid and be faithful. Be fearless and faithful. And then he gives a challenge. In verse 11, 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Who is this challenge addressed to? You, if you have an ear to hear. Anyone in any age who has an ear to hear, Jesus is speaking to you. And what is the challenge? To overcome. To be victorious. He who overcomes what? The pressure, the poverty, and the persecution. Can I say something rather obvious? In order to be an overcomer, there must be something in your life that needs overcoming. Is that obvious? You show me someone who says, I never have anything going wrong in my life. And I will show you an undercomer. There are a lot of people around today telling you that the Christian life equals no problems. That's not the Christian life. The Christian life is problem after problem after problem that I am able to overcome by the grace of Jesus Christ. You say, well, Dan, I, I would overcome, but I got too many problems. No, it's the problems in your life that allow you to be an overcomer. Now, the great thing about this book is that in chapter 1, we see the image of the risen Christ. He's risen from the dead. He's glorified. You know what that tells me? That tells me we are not fighting for victory. We are fighting from victory. He's already risen. And out of his power, as the risen Christ, we overcome. And it gets back to that principle. Apart from him, I can do nothing. That's how we overcome. And what's the promise to the overcomer? The end of verse 11, you will not be hurt by the second death. This applied to these people in Smyrna because they were thinking this could be the day when they come and get me and burn me at the stake. This could be the day when they take me and throw me to the lions. And Jesus says, here's the promise to the overcomer. They can kill you once but they can't kill you twice. Death is separation. When you die physically, there's a separation that will happen. Your spirit will separate from your body.
There's also a separation in the second death that Jesus is talking about because he is talking about being separated from God forever. There's a first death, separation of body and spirit. There's a second death, which is of a far greater magnitude, and that is to be separated from God for eternity. And Jesus says to the overcomer, you don't have to worry about the second death. You're only going to die once, and then you're going to be in my presence forever. Are you suffering today? Isn't it nice to hear Jesus say, I know? And for Jesus to say, don't be afraid, it's going to get worse. But be faithful unto death. Because I'm going to come back and bring you the crown of life. Let me close with this. I don't know if you remember the story of Brer Rabbit. He was uh, chased by Brer Fox all the time. And one day, Brer Fox caught Brer Rabbit. And he said, I'm going to kill you, but before I kill you, I'm going to make your life miserable. And Brer Rabbit said, that's fine, but don't throw me in the briar patch. Fox said, well, I'm going to skin you alive. I'm going to burn you up. I'm going to hang you. I'm going to drown you. Then I'm going to cook you, and then I'm going to eat you. And Brer Rabbit said, fine, okay. Don't throw me in the briar patch. So the fox thought for a little bit. He said, the first thing I'm going to do is throw you in the briar patch. So he threw him in the briar patch full of thorns and thistles and things that would hurt you. He slings him into the briar patch. But little did he know that Burr Rabbit was born in the briar patch and was raised in the briar patch. So he throws him into the briar patch, and the next thing he knows, he looks up and Burr Rabbit is sitting on the hillside. You see, he thought he was throwing him into suffering, he was actually throwing him into a blessing. The most Satan can do to you today as a Christian is throw you in the briar patch. But let me remind you, that's where you were born again. If your testimony is like mine, it involves some suffering to get my attention so that I came to Christ. I was born again in the briar patch. And you were raised spiritually in the briar patch because it's through the sufferings and trials of life that you grew. 
So the most he can do is throw you in the briar patch. And he thinks he's throwing you into suffering and condemnation, and instead it's a blessing. And the next time he sees you, you'll be on the hillside. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this little letter to a suffering church that gives us so much perspective on what you're doing in our lives and what you want to do. And Father, we confess to you that so much of the time we live in comfort. We don't experience the persecution of standing up for you because we're not standing up for you. Challenge us today to no longer be afraid, but to be faithful unto death. And stop looking at just the present and start looking at the future and the promises you have for us of a crown of life. And Lord, as a result of that, I pray that our lives would be a fragrant aroma, bringing glory to you and causing the world around us to want to come to know the Savior that we know. And we will be careful to give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.